Luke chapter 22, we'll be looking at verses 21 through 30. Do you remember last week uh, we spent some time looking at Jesus' celebration of the Last Supper of the Passover with His disciples? Um, And what we did last week is we kind of rearranged the furniture up here. Uh, Well, we decided to keep it for a little while because of the implications of it theologically that through the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the words through prayer and through the sacraments, God speaks to us. And even in the ways that we arrange our furniture here at church, it speaks of what we believe. Uh, So we have the the table here, we have uh, the, uh, the sacrament of baptism, and we have the preaching of the word, which is how God speaks to us. So as we read the word this morning, these are the words of the Lord that He has for us. Luke 22, verses 21 through 30. But behold, the hand of Him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes that it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom He is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and honoring in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. Um, Before we get started this morning, I just wanted to say thank you, uh, first of all, to Nick and Amber, to Boyd and Michelle, and to Heath. Uh, who put on our wonderful Valentine's dinner last night. I don't know about you, but uh, I really enjoyed myself there. The food was good. The entertainment was great. It was good to, to laugh with one another. It's great to have childcare have that provided. Uh, so thank you uh, for putting that on for us. We really appreciated it. Uh, we got to have some insight into, uh, into the relationships in our congregation knowing what people's favorite color is, or if they don't know what people's favorite color is. Uh, it was just a really good time uh, that we had, so thank you for that. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, last week uh, we looked at the story of the Last Supper, Jesus' celebration of Passover with his disciples. Uh, as we round out our study of Luke heading towards Easter here, we are at the last hours of Jesus' life. Uh, We're going to really slow things down as we look at these last hours of Jesus, starting with the Last Supper here uh, into the Garden of Gethsemane, 
his betrayal, his, trial, his arrest and his trial, his time on the cross, and finally his resurrection uh, on Easter. We're looking forward to that. But as Jesus concludes the meal here with his disciples, he makes a very startling statement. And this statement kind of rekindles an old argument that's been going on for years with his disciples. And the bold statement that Jesus makes is this. He says, the hand of the him who betrays me is at the table. It's like a bomb that Jesus drops in the middle of the table there, right in the middle of the upper room. And he continues and he says, For the Son of Man goes that it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Can you imagine the sideways glances in the eyes of the disciples once they hear this? Like, what is going on? In Luke's account, uh, Jesus just lays it out there. He doesn't say who is actually going to be the one who betrays. He just says it and he leaves it. Uh, We had skipped over a couple of verses at the beginning of chapter 22. Uh, last week so that we could focus on the table. But Luke, in Luke uh, 22, verses 1 through 6, he describes to us that Judas is going to be the one, that he is the one who goes away to the chief priests and to the officers and discusses with them how he might be the one to betray Jesus. But Luke's focus on this account here is not actually on the betrayer himself, not on his identity, but on the reaction of the disciples to this very bold statement that he makes. And the disciples suddenly get defensive with one another. And this old argument that's been brewing with them uh, bubbles to the surface again. And this argument is this, who among them is the greatest? And we have seen them discuss this before in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 48, and here we see it again. And and if you can use your imagination, you can kind of get a sense of what's going on in this upper room with these disciples. Uh, You can imagine um, uh, some of the other Gospels describe the disciples as saying, surely it's not I, Lord. Surely not I. They get very defensive. And you can see that there's an easy transition from them getting defensive to then pointing the finger at one another. Uh, I can imagine Peter, and it's easy to imagine what Peter would say. Uh, He's often the most brash. He opens his mouth quickly. But you can imagine Peter saying, like, you know, it can't be me. I know it can't be me. Uh, I'm one of Jesus' favorites. I walked on water with Jesus. You remember that? You saw me. But I could see maybe how Matthew, maybe it's Matthew. I could see him. You know, he's a former tax collector, Maybe he could be the one to betray Jesus. And you can kind of see all the disciples engaging in this, getting defensive with themselves and then pointing the finger at one another, trying to portray portray themselves as the greatest. And one by one, they throw each other underneath the bus. You know, it's really easy for us uh, to, um, to look at the disciples here and to give them a hard time. I think often when we see them kind of as, as these bumbling disciples throughout the Gospels, it's easy, it's easy for us to point the finger at them, saying, you know, how could they do this? They're at the Last Supper with Jesus. 
He's just given them his body and his blood. He has fulfilled, in a sense, the Passover. And what they're doing right now is that they're arguing with one another on who is the greatest. And my initial reaction is, how could they? You know, how self-centered could these men possibly be? Uh, Several weeks ago, as we looked in previous chapters of Luke, uh, we railed on the Pharisees because of their self-centeredness. But it seems like the disciples, uh, or it seems like the Pharisees have nothing on these disciples. But before we come down too hard on the disciples, uh, one of the things that we need to do is to see things from their point of view for just a minute. You know, our perspective on life and our perspective on Jesus always comes through the cross. When we think about who Jesus is, it's hard for us to think about who Jesus is without thinking about the fact that he died for our sins on the cross. But the disciples didn't have that perspective at this point. See, when they looked at Jesus, they were looking at him from the other side of the cross. They didn't know that in a day, in about 24 hours, that Jesus would be hanging on a cross, being crucified. They would understand it later, but it wasn't part of their paradigm yet. That wasn't a part of their world view. So before we start slamming the disciples for what they are doing, let's try to see things from their point of view for just a second to provide a little empathy to the disciples. Because I'm pretty sure that if we traded out those 12 disciples for any 12 of us, I think we would probably react in the same way that the disciples did, if not worse. Certainly not any better. So I know this isn't the main thrust of the passage this morning, but I felt convicted of it as I was studying it. It's a lot easier for us to throw stones at the disciples, to throw stones at others, uh, to judge them, to criticize, but throwing stones tends to be pretty destructive. We know that. But what's more beneficial and also a lot more difficult in life is to show empathy, to gain perspective, to walk a mile, as the saying goes, in another person's shoes. Because who's to say that we wouldn't act in the same way if we were them? So what I'm advocating here is for showing grace to these bumbling disciples as we read through this account That we show grace to them because of the grace that we have been shown in Christ as well. You know, most of the time we don't really have an idea of what is going on in the lives of others around us. Uh, We see them reacting to to things. Uh, We hear hurtful things that they say. But showing grace to one another means that we give one another the benefit of the doubt. That doesn't mean that we're a doormat for people to step on as Christians Uh, But it means that we don't automatically jump to the worst thoughts about another person. Instead, we seek to understand, seek to show love, because that's what Christ has done for us. So through this meal that he has with his disciples, we talked last week that Jesus, in a sense, institutes or creates a new family dynamic. Passover is usually celebrated with your immediate family, But Jesus celebrates it with his disciples because what he's doing is creating this this bond that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ 
because of the cross. Not only do we have a new family, but what also is Jesus is creating is he is creating a new culture. He is creating a counter culture. That's why our sermon title this morning is the counter culture of the cross. So when Jesus hears this quarreling among the disciples, he quickly puts an end to it. And he says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. We're going to look at this word benefactors. He says, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. So not only does the cross create a new family, as we mentioned, but the cross also creates a new society. It creates a counter culture. And to demonstrate this, Jesus reminds, himself, reminds his disciples about the culture that they see around them there in the Greco-Roman world at the time. So he talks about authority and lordship and benefactors. So what is Jesus really talking about here? What is this culture that he's referring to? So uh, in, the, in the culture at that time, people who were higher up in the world would relate to those who were lower in status, but only if the relationship paid off in some way. So those who are of higher status would relate to those in lower status as long as there was benefit to the relationship. As long as there was benefit. If so, then the person of a higher status would become a benefactor. This is what Jesus is talking about here in terms of benefactor. So if you were of lower status and had a benefactor, they helped you. They assisted you in some way. But at that point in your life and from then on, you owed them. You owed them favors. You owed, you, you owed them uh, tasks that you would do. Um, you owed them for the rest of your life. And so these benefactors would engage in relationships that would benefit them, that would pay off in some way. If there was no payoff, then there would be no desire for relationship. Because what would they get out of it? Nothing. Now, it may be not quite as explicit, but this is how the world works, even today, isn't it? Uh, last night, one of the questions that was asked is uh, to name uh, the husband's favorite movie during the not-so-newlywed game that was played. A um, uh, little insight into myself. Uh, one of my favorite movies... Um, I would go back and forth as to what my wife would say as what my favorite movie was. It would either be the Lord of the Rings trilogy, or uh, it would be Field of Dreams. So um, as I was going through this, it reminded me of a scene in the Field of Dreams. Um, as I was beginning to describe this movie, the, the premise of this movie is kind of far out there, so I've got to describe it uh, if you've never seen uh, Field of Dreams. Uh, there's a man by the name of Ray. His name is Ray Kinsella. He was an aging hippie who had gone to Berkeley, um, but he and his wife decided to buy a farm in Iowa and tried their hand at farming. Uh, one day when he was out in his cornfield, he hears a voice that tells him, if you build it, he will come. Uh, after some soul-searching and hearing this voice, a few more times, 
Ray comes to realize, and this is where it gets a little far-fetched, uh, he realizes that if he builds a baseball diamond in his cornfield, then his father's favorite baseball player, who is Shoeless Joe Jackson, would be able to come and play on this baseball field. As I was writing that out, I was like, this, <laughs> this is just so far out there. But that, that's the premise of this movie. So he does. He builds the field, and lo and behold, what happens? Shoeless Joe Jackson comes out of the cornfield, and he uh, plays baseball on this field. And not only Shoeless Joe, but several other players come as well. They have a good time. Ray hears the voice a few more times, and he is called to do several other things as well. And what these things do is they benefit people around him. Uh, an author, a former baseball player who never got his shot at the big leagues. And things are going well, and Ray is enjoying this baseball field. Uh, but then something happens towards the end of the movie, and this author that, that he brings in is asked to go back with the baseball players, back into this cornfield, to see what's out there. And Ray realizes that he's jealous. He said, this is my cornfield. Why am I not the one who is invited out there? And what Shoeless Joe helps him to realize is that at this point, Ray is asking the question, what's in it for me? So much of the movie, he had done things to benefit others, but he realized he got to the point where the real reason he was doing it is, what's in it for me? It was self-centered. Uh, I won't spoil the end of the movie. He does, uh, he does have an opportunity to get a benefit out of it. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I don't want to be a spoiler. But what I realized is, don't we approach people and relationships in the same way, thinking, What's in it for me? If I'm to engage with this other person, if I'm to engage, uh, what is in it for me? Um, the way we make decisions about who we engage with or who we pursue in relationship is by determining if there will be a payoff or a benefit to us. And if there's not, then we're reluctant. Uh, in business, we often talk about our return on investment. Well, if there's not a return on an investment in a relationship, why would we engage in that? Well, Jesus is telling his disciples that this was how the culture around them operated, but this was not how they were to operate because they were a counterculture of the cross. And this is not how God operates in his kingdom. Uh, if you look back in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, Moses tells the people of Israel, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. So God doesn't engage in relationship with his people because there's some huge cosmic payoff for him. Instead, he knew the opposite would be true. Instead of, having, uh, instead of gaining from his relationship with us, he knew that he would be compelled to give of himself, that it would bring him sorrow and pain and heartache. But God entered into a relationship with us based on love based on love. And love always involves sacrificing of oneself. 
kind of hard to preach a sermon on Valentine's Day and not at least speak of love just a little bit. Uh, When we met together last night for our dinner, I read the passage from John 4, verses 7 through 12, talking about this love that God has for us. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. So God is love, as John tells us here. And this is the paradigm under which God operates in this world. It's a paradigm of love. So how is it possible for us to be this counterculture that Jesus is describing in our passage this morning? Well, let's look first of all at how Jesus chose His disciples. 